John chapter 17, we'll begin reading with verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through them, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, Just as I am not of the world, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Would you bow in prayer with me again? Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to come again before your word. And so I pray now as we consider it together that this book would live to us, that our eyes would see the truth that it contains and our hearts would receive it. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work in me, through me, and in the hearts of each one who hears, that your word would do its sanctifying work in your people and its saving work in the hearts of those who do not yet know you. Lord, personally, I pray this morning for strength to make it through the next half hour or so. And Lord, I pray that you would be honored in everything that is said and done. Be glorified. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now some of you may look at the texts that I uh, choose for Sunday mornings, working through, and you say that that man has no sense of consistency whatsoever. Because last week, I preached for 35 minutes or so from verses 1 through 5. Well, if I take that same rate of pace and we go verses 6 through 19, we ought to be out of here by 1.30 or so. I promise that uh, we won't travel at that same pace. Um, We could have divided these verses up more than we did, but I think they need to be kept together um, because of context. 
Um, and I've tried to divide these, these, this section up into to s- smaller sections. I have three sections for you that I'll try to name as I go. And I've tried my very best not to go Puritan on you. I don't know how many of you have ever read any of the sermons by the Puritans, but uh, several pages in you'll realize that you come to a paragraph and the, the writer says, and 47thly, and then he goes on with his next point. Uh, so I will not give you that many points through these verses, but I will give you simply three. In verses 6 through 10, we'll see that the disciples belong to God. In verses 11 through 15, that the disciples will be kept by God. And in verses 16 through 19, that the disciples will be sanctified by God. They, they belong to God. They will be kept by God. And they will be sanctified by God. Let's look at that first one together. In verse 6, Jesus says in His prayer, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me. Now some of your translations say, I have revealed or manifested your name to the people whom you have given me. And that's a matter of interpretation. I believe that men is the proper translation here considering the context. Jesus, as we have seen in those first five verses, has prayed for Himself. And He only comes to the Father with one petition on His own behalf, and that is for His own glory. And in the second set of verses, verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays specifically for the men whom God has given Him, the disciples who were with Him, the eleven who were with Him at the time of this prayer. Now, as we go through these things, you'll see that even as Jesus teaches the disciples and prays for the disciples, that there are matters that we can take and apply to ourselves. There's a lot of overlap. But Jesus does pray specifically for all believers and all those whom the Father has given Him in verses 20 through 26, which we'll consider next week. But I believe in these verses, He's praying specifically for the eleven. He says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. And we've noticed before that Jesus' whole ministry has been one of revealing or manifesting, as he says here, the Father to the world. And he has specifically done it with this group that's with him. Jesus regards the apostles or the disciples here as a gift to himself from the Father. And we discussed this briefly last week. He says there, they were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. These disciples were a gift to Jesus from the Father. Remember the night before he called them, he spent the whole night in prayer. And when he went out and called his apostles, he considered them a gift from the Father. And he says, they have kept your word. Now that's a statement that ought to kind of jar us a little bit because we've seen how they have responded to the teachings of Jesus. Some of the things that they've said in reaction to how the the Pharisees have treated them. But Jesus here says, they have kept your word. Now we can clearly say they have not kept his word perfectly. But through um, through their wavering, through their uncertainty, Jesus affirms their profession And he says that they have kept your word. That is, they have, through all of this, despite their wavering, despite their uncertainty, they have believed and held on to the message of Jesus. He said in verse 7, Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. 
Now they actually claimed this right back in chapter 16, verse 30. They said, now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. And we know that the disciples in that statement, knowing what happens after this, that they will all betray Jesus, they will all run away and abandon Him, that they are a bit too self-confident in their own profession. But as we come to the prayer of Jesus, it should encourage us and comfort us that Jesus recognizes their profession as genuine. He knows their flaws. He knows that they're going to abandon Him. Yet He still says, they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. Jesus affirms their profession. Even in verse 8, he says, I have given them the words which you've given me, and they have received them, and have known surely, known truly, they have genuinely known that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. They received Jesus' words. They truly knew that Jesus came from the Father. Now we're talking about the fact that the disciples belong to God. There's only one way that one can belong to God, and that is just as they did, have received the words of Jesus. Received the message of Jesus and have believed that the Father sent Him. That boils down to two things. that One, they believed the words of Jesus, they believed His message, and they believed that He was who He said He was. They believed in His identity as the Messiah, that He was the Christ who was sent from God. Though they didn't understand it all. They believed in Him as the Christ, as the Messiah. They believed in Him as the Son of God. They believed in Him to be God Himself. In verse 9, Jesus makes an interesting statement. He says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. That seems a little harsh, a little cold maybe at first. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for these guys. That's exclusive. Now Jesus does pray for the world. He actually says later on in verse 21 um, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus does pray for the world. That, they, that those whom God has chosen, those who are given to Christ, would come. He does pray for the world even from the cross, right? Remember, he prays that prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prayed for those sinners who didn't recognize who he was. And he has a love for the world. John 3.16 is the most obvious of all that general application of the love of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's not that Christ has no concern for the world or that Christ never prays for the world. But this prayer, this section of this prayer is not for the world. These are things that the world cannot claim. No one in the world can say that they belong to God. You hear folks say all the time, well, we're all God's children. We all belong to God in the end. Well, no, you don't. <laughs> if you have not received the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not believed that He is the Son of God, sent from God to take away the sins of those who put their trust in Him, you do not belong to God. 
Jesus does not pray for the world in this part of the prayer. This prayer is only for the disciples, only for those whom the Father has given him. It's an exclusive prayer. He says, all mine are yours in verse 10. The world can't claim this. He says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. You remember back in chapter 14, verse 20, Jesus said, at that day, you will know that I am in my Father. And you in me, and I in you. And we talked about our unity in Christ. Those of us who have received the words of Christ, who have believed that He is the Son of God. How that just as Christ is in God, the Father, just as Christ has union with the Father, fellowship with the Father, so we have fellowship, have union with Christ. When we are baptized here in a pool of water, it's, it's a symbol of what God has done spiritually. That we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. That we are immersed into God. He said, all mine are yours and yours are mine. And we saw the same thing back in chapter 16 verse 15. He said, all things that the Father has are mine. If we belong to God, if we belong to the Father, then we belong to Christ. And if we belong to Christ, then we belong to the Father. And if we belong to the Father and to Christ, then we have the Holy Spirit. We have all of God. And He has all of us who believe in Him. And He says, I am glorified in them. How? <laughs> How is He glorified in them? I believe it is first because they have believed in Him. What glorifies Christ more than that those who hear His message should receive it and submit to it and believe in Him? But He's glorified in them not just because they have believed in Him, but because of what He's going to do through them after all this happens, after His death, after His resurrection, when they devote themselves to His ministry. He is glorified in Him in them. It is encouraging, at least to me, that though they have failures, though they have flaws, these are, these are seriously imperfect men. These are seriously flawed disciples. Yet he says, even knowing all that they will do to abandon him, he is still glorified in them. He says, I am glorified in them. And if He is glorified in them, I can have confidence that if I believe the same message they believed, if I devote myself to the same ministry of the Word that they devoted themselves to, if I serve the same Christ that they served, I have the same standing as even the eleven apostles before God. And He is glorified in me. And He's glorified in you. We belong to God. <clears throat> Excuse me. I started Joel <clears throat> probably soon after his third birthday on a, a children's catechism. We didn't make it very far, but we did the best we could. And the very first question, I, you should ask him sometime, see if he still remembers it, was what is our only hope in life and in death? And then Joel, a little three-year-old Joel would repeat back to me that we are not our own but belong to God. Amen. What is our only hope in life and death? That's not just for a three-year-old. That's for someone with cancer on their deathbed. 
That's for a middle-aged person in a financial crisis or a family struggle or a parent whose teenager has gone away. What is our only hope in life and death? And it is this. It is that we are not our own, but that we belong. We are the possession of God Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the disciples belong to God. Number two, the disciples will be kept by God. Verse 11, he says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. He says, keep them through your name, in your name, by your name. This is what in theological terms is called the perseverance of the saints. You may call it eternal security. <clears throat> I believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, but I don't like the title, the perseverance of the saints. Because my keeping in God, my being kept by God has nothing to do with my own ability to persevere. How do I know that tomorrow I'm going to wake up and still love Jesus? How do I know that in 10 years I'm still going to be preaching the Word of God? Not because of my own effort in persevering, but because I am preserved by God. So we'll just call it the preservation of the saints. We are kept, we have assurance because God keeps us. He will hold me fast. I think about sometimes how that we'll walk to the mailbox, and I don't mean to use Joel as an illustration twice in one sermon, but he'll want to walk with me to the road to check the mail. Okay, but you have to hold my hand. He's got my hand, I have his. He's holding on. Do you think that I am trusting in His holding on to the point that I'm not going to keep my grip? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Even if He lets go, if He releases His fingers, He's still not going anywhere. Because I've got hold of Him. And that's my relationship to God. Yes, I'm holding on to Christ. Yes, I'm tr I, I need to hold on to Him. I'm trusting Him with my life. But should my grip slip, I'm not at all concerned. Because He has hold of me. I'm not going to get hit by a car. I'm not going to make shipwreck of my faith. I'm not going to go to hell. Not because of my own ability to persevere, but because He is preserving me. He is holding on to me. He says, I'm no longer into the world, in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Father, keep them through your name. It's through the name of God. It's in His person, His nature, His character that we are kept. And He does this, one, that. Keep, keep an eye out when you read this prayer, and really all of Scripture for those key words. One important word in this prayer is the word that. Because he, he's getting ready to tell us why. Or to what end. Or what purpose something serves. And one purpose. Or one result rather. Of us all being held by Christ. He says that they may be one. 
as we are. There is a unity in the body of Christ that you will not find anywhere else in the world. The world wants unity. They want people of all races and languages and backgrounds and social groups and economic classes to come together and just live in harmony. But they can't make it work. But then you come to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And no, we don't flesh it out perfectly. But as we are each all held by the same Christ, as we have all been baptized into the same Christ, we have a unity that the world cannot produce. I can go anywhere in the world and meet a like-minded Christian, no matter of their background, it doesn't matter if we speak the same language, we are going to have a unity that the world does not have. He compares it even to the Trinity. That they may be one as we are. The unity that is with the Father and the Son and the Spirit is a unity that we have as believers. We'll talk more about this next week, but we don't live it out perfectly. But the unity is there. We are unified in the Lord Jesus. We just need to recognize it and live like it. He says in verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Jesus has protected and kept His disciples through His ministry. He says, those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost. Except, uh-oh, except the son of perdition. That the scripture might be fulfilled. That's Judas. Does that cause you to worry? Does that cause you to wonder if Christ really does have the ability to keep His own? Did Judas slip through Christ's fingers? He couldn't hold on to Him? No, He's called here the son of perdition. There's a, a play on words here that you can't really see in English, but... The word lost, he says none of them is lost. And the word perdition are very similar in Greek. You really could translate it this way. None of them is lost or destroyed except the son of destruction. None is lost except the son of being lost. None is wasted except for the son Of loss. Judas was lost. Judas was destroyed. He met his destruction because he was the son of destruction. It's the same term that's designated to the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians. He's called the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition. Mark 14, 21, Jesus said that it would have been better for Judas had he never been born. Because he was born for a purpose. Yes, he made his choice. But in the sovereign plan of God, Jesus knew all along that Judas would betray him. In fact, he chose him to that end. In John 6, 70, Jesus told the disciples, He said, Here are you twelve. I've chosen all of you. And is not one of you a devil? Jesus knew all along 
from the very first that Judas was the one who would betray him. He was the son of perdition. So whenever I see that Judas was lost, it does not cause me to trust Christ less, but rather it causes me to trust him more because Judas betrayed Jesus. He says that the scripture might be fulfilled. Even in Judas's destruction, Jesus did exactly what he came to do. He accomplished his will. Christ will hold me fast. And the case of Judas doesn't cause me to doubt that one bit. In verse 13 he says, But now I come to you, that is, the Son is going back to the Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That's another that to take notice of. Jesus has promised to keep his disciples. He has promised to keep even us. That we may be one and that they may have my joy. Jesus is awfully concerned with the disciples' joy, isn't he? We've seen that a few times throughout these last few chapters. The knowledge of Jesus' glorification, the fact that he is going back to the Father, as he says here, and his promise to keep his disciples. will produce complete and full joy in the believer. Knowing that Christ has returned to the Father, that He has been glorified, and knowing that though He is not with us physically, He has promised to keep us, to preserve us to the very end, there is nothing else in the whole world that ought to give a disciple of Jesus more joy. He said that your joy might be fulfilled, that it may be complete. Verse 14, I've given them your word, the word has, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. The disciples have Christ's message. They believe it. And what's the result? They're hated. <laughs> We've already been promised that all throughout the chapter 16 really that the world would hate the followers of Jesus they hated Jesus they put him to death his disciples live like him so they hate the disciples too Paul told Timothy all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution because he says they are not of the world. It's become sort of a cliche saying, but it is from the Bible, that Christians are in the world, but not of the world. That's where it comes from. There are two main problems, I believe, in the church today. One is that too many Christians are not in the world we tend to shelter ourselves. We like to keep our Christianity in the walls of the church building. Um, the closest of our friends are other Christians. We don't go to where unbelievers are. We get uncomfortable around certain kinds of people who aren't like us. And we never make any effort to be in the world. 
The fact of the matter is, Christ says they are in the world. And in fact, in verse 15, he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. If God wanted you out of the world, if He didn't want you mingled in with the people of the world, you know what He would have done? When you became a Christian, He would have taken you on to heaven. But He left you here. Why did Jesus leave? Why did He go back to the Father? Because His work was done. Why are we still here? Because our work isn't done. We still have a mission to carry out. And we cannot be those who hide from the world. The Great Commission is to make disciples. But the first part of that is that we should go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. We can't sit right here and expect it to get done. We have to be out there. So one problem is that too many Christians are not in the world. A second problem, too many professing Christians live as though they are of the world. See, there's a balance here. We must be in the world. We are called to be in the world. But we must not become like the world. Friends, if your style of living, if your priorities, if your ideologies, if the things that are most precious to you are the same as are most precious to the unbelievers you know, there is a problem. If your priorities line up with the priorities of your unsaved neighbor, there's a problem. If your ideologies line up with the ideologies of unbelievers, there's a problem. Yes, we must be in the world. I encourage you, I implore you to be in the world doing the work of God. But do not become like the world. Keep yourself separate. He says in verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but the prayer is this, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Satan desires to have each one of you. He desires your testimony to be tainted by the, the ways of the world. He desires that you should look exactly like your unbelieving friends so that no one can tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. And Jesus has prayed for you that the Father would keep you from the evil one. That's a reference to Satan, of course. The disciples were commanded to pray that for themselves in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. From evil. And how comforting it is to know that I'm not just supposed to pray that for myself, but that Christ also prayed it for me. He has prayed that I would be kept from the evil one. Do not fear going into the world. Because Christ has prayed that you should be kept from being one who is of the world. That's number two. And number three, the disciples will be sanctified by God. In verse 16, he basically repeats what he said in 14, just for emphasis. He says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But then, verse 17, he says, sanctify them by your truth. Sanctify them by your truth. 
What do you think of when that word sanctify comes to mind? How many times have you used the word sanctify this weekend? If you taught Sunday school this morning, you might have said it. But it's not a word we use often. One definition given is, to sanctify means to set apart and dedicate a person or a thing to the service of God. To dedicate as a sacrifice. We might have a better understanding of what it means by looking how Paul used it in 1 Thessalonians 4. He said, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. How you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So being sanctified is... Walking in a way that pleases God, in a distinctive way that marks one off as a servant of God, following the commandments of the Lord Jesus. And then what does he say in verse 3? He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So many people spend their lives saying, I just want to know what God's will is. The Bible is very clear. The will of God for your life is that you be sanctified. That you be set apart, dedicated to the service and the use of God. That you not live for yourself, but that you give yourself wholly to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His service. And our whole life as a Christian is gradually more and more devoting ourselves more and more to the service and work of the Lord Jesus. I have submitted myself, I have surrendered myself to Jesus As His servant. He is my Lord. But you know what? I do it very imperfectly. And so the process of sanctification in my life is realizing every so often another area that I have not fully surrendered to Jesus and then surrendering it to Jesus. And I might go on for a while and think I'm doing okay. And then in, my, in the process of Bible reading and, and, and Christian relationships, the Lord opens my eyes to see another area of my life that I need to surrender to the Lord Jesus. And, and it's my job then to surrender myself to the Lord Jesus in that area. Sanctification is a lifelong process. This is God's will for every Christian. And how does it happen? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. How can you be sanctified? How can you be set set apart for the work of God? How can you be continuously submitting yourself more and more to the Lordship of Jesus? How can you be continuously being made clean for His use? By the truth of the Word of God. Psalm 119 is one of the best psalms there is, if not the best psalm in my opinion. One verse that the Lord used to take hold of me even as a teenager was verse 9. He says, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your Word. Let me tell you, that doesn't just apply to a young man. How can an old man cleanse his way? How can a young lady, an older lady, how can a child cleanse his or her way? 
by taking heed according to your word. You want to be made holy? You want to be set apart for God's service? Take heed to the word of God. He said, with my whole heart I've sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. How many times have we lied when we pledged that at Vacation Bible School? Thine word I have hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. Sanctify them by your truth. That is Christ's prayer for His disciples. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. How does that happen practically? I think the obvious, most obvious way is personal Bible reading. You can't really know God without spending time in His Word personally. Take some time every day. We call it quiet time. Take some time alone and spend time reading, studying the Bible, God's Word. Maybe the second most obvious way, show up for church. <laughs> Here's hear regular Bible preaching. You might, there might be better preachers in the county and in the world, but there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of churches. But God has given one to you to commit yourself to. And yeah, you can sup supplement by listening to, to TV preachers, the good ones, what few there are, or you know, on the app or whatever, whoever your favorite preachers are. You can listen to those guys, but there is no substitute for gathering with people of your community with whom you have covenanted together to sit under the preaching of the Word of God. And if your pastor should ever stop preaching the Word of God, if he ever gets off on politics, or if he ever starts just telling you his own opinion, or just you know updating you on what's happening in the news every week, have a sit-down, straighten him out. And if he won't quit, I say this humbly, fire him. Get you a preacher who will stick to the book, who will tell you what the Bible says. Hopefully you'll listen and you won't have to fire him. <laughs> Show up for church. Hear the preaching of the Word of God. Another way, one that's not as popular for some reason in Surrey County. Personal discipling relationships. I've talked about this and you've heard me say that, but that word discipleship has been infused with so much meaning from so many different groups and people that it's hard to know exactly what it means. Can I tell you just the simplest way that you can have a, a discipleship relationship with someone? Just, make, just read the same chapters of the Bible every week during your quiet time and then get together once a week to talk about it. You, you know, go find somebody, a younger Christian. Or if you're a younger Christian, you want to be helped by someone older, go to that older Christian and say, hey, you know what? Can we kind of line up our, our quiet time reading? Can we read the same chapters every week and then just get together, uh, you know, over coffee and just talk about what the Lord's teaching us? You need relationships like that. 
Hebrews tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but he says to do it all the more as you see the day approaching. We shouldn't be getting together as Christians less, but we should be getting together more. You don't just need Sunday Christianity. You need it every day of the week. We need each other more than just the hour we're here on Sunday. We need to take responsibility for one another. We need to take responsibility for each other's spiritual maturity. If we see someone who is lacking, let's pour into those people. Let's help them to grow and mature. If you're, you feel immature and you need help, don't wait for some older Christian to come to you. You take the initiative and say, hey, I need you to obey God's command and disciple me. <laughs> We need the Word of God and we need to be getting it all we can from as many people as we can. Trustworthy people who know it. Let's wrap this up. Why should we be sanctified by the Word? Why should I care about my own sanctification, my own knowledge of the truth of God's Word? Because of verse 18 and 19, he says, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Just as Jesus was sent by the Father to do a work in the world, so Christ has commissioned us to do a work in the world. How important was it that Jesus finish His mission? You can't measure it. Infinitely important. We would all be lost had He not done it. The importance of the mission Christ has given to His church is of utmost importance. We must be preaching the gospel. We must be making disciples. We must be reaching our world. Just as Christ was sent into the world by the Father, so Christ has sent you to do His work in the world. He says in verse 19, For their sakes I sanctified myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Jesus was sanctified. He was set apart to come into the world so that we may be sanctified. Set apart to go into the world. Jesus said that all authority has been given unto Him in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to do whatsoever I've commanded you. And then he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Because we are disciples of Christ, we belong to God. We will be kept by God. And we are being and will be sanctified by God. Would you stand and pray with me? Lord, Your Word is truth. Sanctify us by it. May we know and remember who we belong to. That is our hope. That is our assurance. That we will be kept by You. And not one of us will be lost. And Lord, Lord, until the day that we see You face to face, I pray that You would make us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He was faithful to do the work that the Father sent him to do. So may we be faithful to do what we have been sent out to do. In Jesus' name, amen.